So a few weeks ago, I received a package in the mail, uh, a box about yay, uh, yay wide by yay wide, six by six, uh, from my sister, Danielle. And I opened this up, and I found, along with a card, this, this mug. And uh, if you look at it from a distance, it's one of those nice big mugs with uh, the kind of blue willow painting of a traditional uh, rural town of some kind. It's a nice mug from a distance. But when you look closer, you see that the town is actually being attacked by every imaginable bane. Uh, There's a giant man-eating frog. There are pterodactyls swooping down from the sky and snatching people up. There's pirates, there's a giant robot that shoots laser beams from its eyes, a sea monster, a zombie poodle, um, all kinds of things of the sort. There's more, but I could go on. Uh, If you want to see later, this is not show and tell, but during coffee hour, I will be drinking from my mug. Uh, And the title of the mug is, Things Could Be Worse. my sister, my sister has an identical mug. She ordered a set of two and sent me one. Uh, and uh, those of you who know me know that we've had quite a year. And uh, it, it sort of uh, became an inside joke between us. But it's been making me think that there's, not to criticize the mug, but there's something missing, isn't there? And it's the locusts. <laughs> the locusts. For the last month and a half, I have been uh, quite literally preaching talking, praying, dreaming, seriously, uh, and even eating locusts, I kid you not. Uh, For those of you who have not uh, listened to our non-award winning podcast, um, Alex and I ate chocolate-covered crickets, but close enough, right? Uh, Give me a little credit here, uh, on the podcast. So everything has been about locusts this past month. And no, I know what you're thinking. This is not the latest church growth strategy. Um, This is because we're studying the book of Joel, uh, which is a prophetic book in the Old Testament. And it's addressed to this group of people who are in the midst of a calamity. Uh, They're in the midst of crisis because hordes of juiced-up grasshoppers, which is essentially what a locust is, uh, have come out of nowhere and have destroyed everything in their life. So, uh, you might remember from chapter 1, verse 4, that the devastation in Israel was absolutely total. Uh, Joel said this, chapter 1, verse 4, What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. You have four different waves of locusts coming through and bringing about total devastation. What is left now? Someone said at the 5 p.m. service, a little boy quietly raised his hand and said, "Uh, the destroying locusts are there. (laughs) Thank you. There's nothing. The economy's ruined. There's no food to eat. The cattle are starving out in their pastures. The temple's ruined because they have no wine, they have no oil to light the lampstands, they have no bread, no, no wheat or barley to make bread of the presence to put on the altar. And the crisis has actually made, as Alex showed us, uh, 
It made its way into each and every home. These things have crawled up the walls and through the windows into their houses. You're welcome. All of you can have nightmares about it tonight, too. Uh, This is a worst-case scenario. And the calamity makes it seem that heaven and earth are about to tear open. If you look at verse 10 with me, uh, Joel says this, The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Trembling earth and dark skies. A lot of commentators think that this is actually a physical description of what it looks like when a cloud of locusts swarms so thickly that you can't even see the sun or the moon. And when they come jumping on the horizon, what does it look like? It looks like the ground is shaking. And Joel says this isn't just some sort of random swarm. He compares them to an army that's marching forward, bringing total destruction. You can break out all the swords and bows and shields that you want, and you're not going to stop this army. I, I had an epic battle with about 1,500 hornets in my attic about a month ago, uh, and I can testify to you that fly swatters just don't cut it. you got to have raid, and they didn't have it back then. Um, This is what another commentator calls an apocalyptic nightmare. An apocalyptic nightmare. Things are so bad that it seems like the very fabric of reality is tearing apart and we're seeing through to some truth that we aren't really sure that we want to see. To make things worse, we find out in verse 11 that the commander of this great army is God himself. This is what Joel says in verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. The one who executes his word is powerful. Who sent the locusts? God. What do you do when God is the one who is coming against you? Back to my mug. Could things be worse? Not for Israel. I don't think so. This is as low as it goes. This is, as they like to say in the recovery community, rock bottom. But what I want to suggest to you all this morning is that perhaps rock rock bottom might be exactly the place where you need to go. It's not a fun place to be, but rock bottom is a hopeful place. Uh, God never takes us to rock bottom for no purpose. In the early days of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, the 1930s, as groups of addicts were gathering over coffee pots in these musty church basements, uh, and they were working out what would later become known as the 12 steps, uh, the group leaders noticed this surprising phenomenon. And that was that uh, the so-called borderline alcoholics, you know, the ones who were Uh, still had their livelihoods intact. They were able to keep their jobs. Their spouses hadn't left them yet. Uh, They had sort of an ability to manage their alcoholism. And so when they came to the groups, they showed little or no progress whatsoever. But the, the cases that were most desperate and most hopeless, 
the man who was unemployed and out on the streets, who had no chance at all, for whom the next stop was the morgue. Those guys suddenly seemed to get better. And this is counterintuitive. Uh, Who here has ever had a cold before, right? Uh, Okay, yeah, most of us. Who's that had pneumonia before? Uh, Pneumonia is a little more serious than a cold. Uh, And uh, which one's easier to recover from? (laughs) The cold, right? We get, uh, anyone with small children will testify, you're going to have 12 of them in the next three months. Get ready. Um, You recover from colds all the time. But the more serious one, you would think, that's harder to recover from. But it's the opposite uh, in the case of the alcoholics and Alcoholics Anonymous. Why is that? Uh, the reason has to do with, what, with hitting what AA calls bottom. The bottom comes when a person uh, arrives at this deep recognition that their life is fundamentally unmanageable and that they are powerless to defeat their own inclinations, their own addictions. Uh, So the authors of the AA Big Book write this. Few people will sincerely try to practice the Alcoholics Anonymous program until they have hit this point. Why? Why can't we just like will ourselves to it? Well, uh, it turns out that sobriety, uh, coming out of your addictions, whatever they might be, Uh, and also your idols, requires things like being rigorously honest and tolerant of others, like confessing your faults, and then sacrificing your own time and energy for the good of others. This is what all of steps 2 through 12 involve. If you're going to participate in the program, it's going to cost you enormous amounts of time. It's very difficult. And anybody who's half-hearted about recovery just won't do that stuff. They'll be like, hey, can I just take the shortcut? Isn't there an easier way to go about this? The big book says, quote, the average addict, self-centered in the extreme, doesn't care for this prospect unless he has to do these things in order to survive. Don't you see AA has shown through experience over and over again that half-hearted change and repentance just doesn't work. Um, And I want to suggest that perhaps the founders of AA were discovering in this something of the wisdom of God. Why does God wage total war against his own beloved people? Why does he send tragedy and calamity their way? Is he capricious? Just angry? Is he out to get him? Maybe perhaps it's because sometimes you have to hit rock bottom before you come to your senses. Listen to what God says in verse 12. Verse 12. This is the turning point of the entire book of Joel, by the way. This is where everything changes. Verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, amid your total devastation. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend, that means tear, your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows? 
whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. The key word in this passage is return. Did you see it? We see it three times. It's shuv or shub in Hebrew. In Hebrew. I'm not entirely sure which one it is. Uh, but you see it, return to me with all your heart. Return to the Lord your God. And then who knows whether he will not turn and relent. Same word, all three times. God sends a calamity and aligns himself against his own people so that they might return to him. We'll look at God's own turning in a minute. But first I want to emphasize that this isn't some sort of token repentance ritual. This isn't like, oh, we got the religious elite to do something. Uh, This is holistic reorientation of one's heart and actions. When the Lord says, return to me with all your heart, what he means is with the very core of your whole being, Everything about you needs to change. Uh, in the Bible, the heart is the place where your desires and thoughts and actions all originate. In a post-Christian world, we, we would say uh, that the core of the human personality is what? The brain, right? That's the center of cognition. We're, we're, we're thinking animals. That's what, they would, that's what we would say. Um, but actually, the heart might get it, it a little bit better. Um, Jesus says in Luke 6, 6.45, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And he's not talking about indigestion. Um, Thomas Cranmer, who is the English archbishop who wrote the very first book of common prayer back in 1548, famously said this. He said that what the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. What the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. First, we desire something, then we decide to get it, and then afterwards, we come up with reasons for why we did what we did. We think it's the opposite, but actually it works that way. Um, In other words, your most central and determinative feature of you, according to the Bible, is not your cognition, And it's not your self-determination. It's your affections. As James K.A. Smith has said, you are what you love. This is a biblical way of thinking. The Lord calls Israel to return to him, not just with outward actions, but with a broken heart, with reoriented affections. So I want to ask, what do you love? What's most dear to you? What's that thing that you just can't let go of? That's where your heart is. Is that thing taking you toward the Lord? Or is it pulling you away? There's an outward component, though, too, isn't there? There's fasting and weeping and mourning. When it says... Rend your hearts and not your garments. Uh, that's an expression. <laughs> like, I think you're supposed to rend your heart and your garments. Uh, in the minds of the biblical writers, um, there's no such thing as like a private relationship with God. The heart and the body are interconnected. You really can't have one without the other. So 
what's needed is your heart and also the, the outward expressions of your affections. Um, for my first ever anniversary gift for my lovely wife, Jenna, uh, I gave her a gift that she was, uh, I think at the time, quite thrilled with. She can answer this for you for herself. Um, but it was, uh, it was six scraps of half-finished cherry wood that were intended to be a birdhouse. In the middle of a very, very stressful summer, when we had no money, and we actually were basically homeless. Um, I, I managed to find this piece of cherry wood, and I was trying to sand it down and, and glue it to make like a birdhouse for her. And I spent hours on this thing, but I discovered that I'm not a very good carpenter. And, uh, and that cherry wood is a lot harder than pine. And so come our anniversary, you know, ultimately, I was just like, listen, I love you so much. Look, this is what, this is what I put together for you. <laughs> it's like just all these like pieces of half-finished wood. <laughs> and to, me, to be honest, I never even finished it. <laughs> it never, like eventually we ended up just throwing them away because uh, it was just a bunch of random scraps of wood. Like, happy anniversary, my love. But she loved it, or at least she said she did. And she's not one to lie. And it's because, like, it, you know, what if I had just come up and said, hey, I didn't get you anything. Oh, yeah, I forgot. It's our anniversary. But I really love you, though. I really, really love you. Is that really sincere? I, would, I know how I would feel. I'd be like, well, okay. I mean, we all know as we go on through marriage, sometimes... That happens later on, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, especially when you add kids into the mix. But like, uh, what's needed is your heart and the expression of it. And it's not, it's not like God is waiting around on your perfection or you to be perfectly put together, right? He'll take the scraps of wood. He just, he just wants you to be whole and complete toward him. He wants you to mean it, and you can't mean it if you don't do it externally. You're just lying to yourself. It's fakeness. Just in the same way that doing the ritualistic actions without any kind of interior reality is fake, doing the, saying you have an interior reality without any outward manifestation is fake. Jesus called it hypocrisy. What's needed is a wholehearted, whole body return. So... That's what's called for, for every one of us. And not like once in your life. This isn't a question when you sit in the pew and it's like, do I need to repent? Let me answer that for you. Yes. Uh, Jesus has called us to a lifestyle of repentance. Every day I wake up and I have to rethink things. Sometimes it's really big. Sometimes it's like something small and subtle but I tend to get it wrong all the time. Uh, that's what Christian, a Christian anthropology teaches. But when we do turn back, what do we find? Um, if you were to stand outside of Giant Eagle or Market District down there uh, and, and poll people, you would really find two things. First, you'd find that after 20 minutes, uh, security would be called. But second, you would find that a lot of people would say, 
what's the God of the Old Testament like? Angry, capricious, and spiteful. He aligns himself against his own people. He makes total war on his own people, right? Richard Dawkins famously wrote this in his book, The God Delusion. I'm almost hesitant to read this quote from the pulpit because I hate it so much. He says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, an unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now, even the most hardened skeptics uh, will admit that clearly this man has never read the Bible. Uh, Or if he has, he doesn't know how to read a book. But uh, it raises an important point, doesn't it? Uh, And that is that we all tend when we don't actually have any kind of revelatory word, we tend to paint God in our own image. If you're angry and you're spiteful, guess how you're going to think of God? Angry and spiteful. Uh, A.W. Tozer once said that the most important thing about any person is what they think of when they think of God. Because it, it works in the opposite direction, too. We project our self-image into the sky, naturally. But when that is corrected by the truth of who God is, then the, then the stream flows back downward. And we ourselves are able to change. Because we realize that deity itself, himself, is good. How does God describe himself? Look at verse 13. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. This is a quote from Exodus 34, 6. Uh, When the Israelites were out in the desert, uh, God took them to Mount Sinai. You may remember this from Charlton Heston's movie, The Ten Commandments. And uh, Moses takes a couple pieces of rock and takes them up on the mountain and... uh, And the Lord comes down and meets him in a cloud and proclaims his true identity. He says who he is. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, that's his personal name, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What the Israelites saw as a dark, terrifying cloud from down below, the reality inside happens to be a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who he is. Jesus understood this and embodied this, brought this home. He told a story in the book of Luke uh, about a a young man, you may know it, who told his father that he really wished that he were dead. And he ran away, demanded the inheritance, and then took all the money and ran off and squandered it, doing whatever it is that he wanted to do. And then calamity set in when all the money was gone, and a famine came, and he was starving. And the young man said to himself, okay, maybe if I turn and go back to my father, maybe I can at least be one of the hired servants. 
So he does. He turns and goes back to the father. And it's not the trip home that causes some sort of change of heart in the young man. It's the response that he receives from the father. The father does not, in that day, it would have been dignified for the father to uh, first pretend to disown his son. And then maybe if he was truly merciful, eventually, after enough pounding on the door and uh, imprecation to let him in. But not this father. He's scanning the horizon for his son. And when he sees him, he picks up his robes and runs, exposing his ankles and humiliating himself in front of everyone to go out and meet this son along the way. And when it comes time for the son to offer his little spiel, the father won't even hear it. He just, he talks over it and says, quick servants, bring the fattened calf, put the best rings on him because this son of mine was lost and now they're found. That's who God is. So why does he align himself against his people? Why all these terrible things? You know, there's a popular book called When, uh, when Terrible Things Happen to Good People. When Bad Things Happen to Good People. I forget what, it's, what the exact thing is. And the, uh, uh, the basic premise is that uh, when terrible things happen, it's because uh, God is good but not strong enough to prevent them from happening. That God is essentially not omnipotent. I think it's a cop-out. That's failing to look deeper and to enter into the difficult question. Why does God send disaster upon Israel? He's turning them for, toward himself. He will spare nothing. He will not spare you any kind of pain in order to bring you ultimate happiness. That's just who he is. This is agonized, tough love that is aimed to bring about repentance. There's a lot of reasons why things happen. Um, I'm not suggesting that every single calamity that comes upon us is merely one sort of wrapped up in one reason. But every time we see calamity, it calls us to look at our innermost heart, to pay attention to our affections, and then to look at Christ who himself lived the life of repentance that we were called to live, who himself uh, humiliated himself and ran out toward lost sons and daughters like you and me. In Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, they found that uh, over time that they could actually raise the bottom. This is kind of good news, that you don't necessarily have to wait uh, until the locust plague. Uh, by, they said, quote, by going back to our own drinking histories, we could show other alcoholics that years before we realized it, we were utterly out of control. They could show the own, t- the own tendencies of their hearts, and then when others heard that, they could say, oh, okay, I'm headed down the exact same road. And truly honestly, could realize their own helplessness long before disaster came. And so the call uh, this morning for you and for me is to repent, to look at our own affections, and to return to the Lord our God. Because he's actually, he's really good. He's kind. 
He wants you in his fellowship. He's not demanding you to pay a pound of flesh, as Shakespeare said in The Merchant of Venice. But he paid the pound of flesh for you. In the words of Marcus Mumford, I'll close with this. It is not the long walk home that will change this heart. It's the welcome that I receive every time I start. Amen.